Why are you here? Are we gonna live life in fear or are we gonna stand up and make sure we're heard? Are we gonna hide or live life by our word? With integrity we can be all that we can see in our mind's eye until we're finally free. We can become whatever we choose once we know the choice lies within me and you. Hello, hello. What is going on? Welcome and thank you so much for tuning in to the Unapologetically Human podcast with me, your host, Dan Boyden. A friend of mine shared a quote with me the other day that I think is really relevant for the times that we're living in and what we're all experiencing together right now. And that is, what is better, uncomfortable truths or comfortable lies? Every truth is a kindness, even if it makes others uncomfortable. Every untruth is an unkindness, even if it makes others comfortable. And so I think it's fitting to start with that because... This episode is going to be full of a lot of uncomfortable truths because this pandemic that's going on is providing us the opportunity with so many of the normal distractions that we have in our life being currently unavailable, things like being able to go out pretty much anywhere, um, you know, can't go out to eat, can't go to the movies can't go see sports, can't go kind of enjoy entertainment anywhere, almost anywhere in our free time, not having those things available and so many people being out of work is providing us the time and the opportunity with so few distractions compared to normal, it's allowing us to have a much more clear look at what's important, right? Because when there's a a state of emergency like this pandemic, we very much go into survival mode and we kind of stop caring about a lot of the things that we might normally care about because we need to go back down to the basics, right? It goes back down to, do I have food and water and shelter? And how do I make sure that I'm safe, I'm healthy, and my family is safe and healthy? And you can see this survival mode very clearly with some glaring examples like when this pandemic started people literally covering their own asses by you know doing things like buying up all the toilet paper and fuck everybody else 
And with so many less distractions and the necessity to focus on what's most important at our base levels for our safety and survival, it also necessitates that people pay a lot more attention to politics. And luckily, people are paying a lot more attention to scientists because those are the types of people, scientists in particular, and experts that we really need to listen to and seek guidance from in times of great need. And I've been pretty quiet over the past little while because there's just so much going on. There's so much to take in. There's so much uncertainty. Um, I'm luckily blessed right now that I worked in one of the industries that got shut down. I'm normally a bar manager, so I'm not working right now. And living in Canada, we've had a pretty a pretty supportive response from our government with benefit programs and stuff. So I really don't have anything to worry about right now as far as paying my rent and making sure that I have food on the table. And I've been spending a lot of time reading, watching a ton of things about what's going on, listening, listening to expert interviews with people explaining not only what's happening right now and what we need to do and what we need to think about, but also really going into some deep conversations about what this is going to look like in the future. You know, I think a lot of us are hoping to go back to some sort of sense of normality, get back to work, get back to, you know, doing our regular things. And there's this question about what's the world going to look like after COVID-19. And one of the interviews I listened to recently on the Monk Dialogues, which is a resource that I highly recommend people check out if they're looking for intelligent discussions with experts about these topics. There's a historian named Nal Ferguson that was talking about how the question of what the world's going to look like after COVID-19 might be the wrong question. You know, it might be how are we going to go forward living with the coronavirus? Because there's no guarantees that we're going to find a vaccine or if we do find a vaccine, which looks like um, is probably going to happen, there's some good results so far, then there's a question of not having enough and how do we distribute it. And, and I've been pretty quiet because I've just been trying to take in what's going on. And I know that the situation that I'm in right now is not the situation that so many other people are in. Not only just in, in my country, in Canada, but also around the world. And 
I'm by no means an expert to to speak about this. So I have this concern and this resistance shows up for me that I don't want to kind of misspeak or, you know, in researching to create this episode, I've really seen, you know, there's so many people saying so much right now. And I I don't want to be just another fucking person just, you know, sharing their fucking opinions about what's going on. Because everybody's got an opinion. Even some of the people I've been listening to that I consider to be relatively smart, um, that I look up to and respect, I've really seen and heard a lot of people saying a lot of dumb shit about what's going on. And my goal, one of my main goals in creating this podcast is to not just be another fucking mouthpiece spouting off about all sorts of opinions that I have about what's going on. But as the host of the Monk Debates and Dialogue says, we need to have more and better conversations about what's going on. So this is a attempt for me to do that because I think that this pandemic is giving us a really good and glaring example of the failures of our systems. And, you know, how many, how many more do we need? We've seen failure after failure after failure for so many years, and there's such a, a lack of trust in our governments and institutions because I think we, so many of us inherently know that this game of life is rigged against most people, you know? There is such a staggering concentration of wealth and power in the hands of so few people and so much inequality, not only for things like wealth inequality, but also things like just having an opportunity for a decent life and a decent living and there's an inequality of just mind-blowing injustice in this world. And this pandemic is giving us the opportunity, another opportunity, to see that. So I titled this episode Political Pandemics because I think that in order for us to answer the questions about what's going on and why did this happen and why has the response been the way that it's been, particularly in places like the States where you're seeing this insane reality TV show that is US and world politics playing out in real time in front of us. And in order to answer the questions why or how, we need to look deeper. We need to look deeper at the foundations of the institutions that govern our society. And we need to take a good hard look 
at ourselves individually and collectively for why things are the way they are and to figure out what do we need to do? Who do we need to be? And what's it really going to take for us to not only come out on the other side of this pandemic and prepare much better so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again, but also to fix the underlying issues that led to the poor response that we're seeing from government and institutions and from the public in certain ways as well. And how are we going to see this pandemic as the practice pandemic that it is in order to move forward and address some of the more dangerous and pressing issues that we're faced with as well, like climate change, for example. One of the things that I'm reminded of most when I look at what's going on right now is one of the things that I remember the comedian George Carlin saying, and that was something to the effect of when you're born into this world, you get a ticket to the freak show. And when you're born in America, you get a front row seat. And in one of his stand-up specials, Carlin talked about how he loves when chaos is happening. He loves when fucking people are dying and society is collapsing and terrible things are happening. And the reason is because the systems that we live with are literally just so fucked and I'm, I'm paraphrasing Carlin here, but they're so fucked up the systems that we live in that when there's chaos, it's like the only opportunity for us that the veil of all of our fucking distractions that keep us distracted from what's important, what's most important, that veil drops and we have a really good opportunity to slow down and take a look at what the fuck is really going on and hopefully change some of the insane conditions that lead to there being so much injustice in this world that we live in. And while I don't share... Carlin's sentiments to laugh about it and just say, fuck yeah, this is great quite so much. I do recognize that these kinds of things happening are, they're really necessary for us to be able to see the things that more of us need to actually be focusing on and to be asking more questions that we actually need to be asking. And at the same time, it, it's also hard to not laugh at and not to obviously not laugh at the pain and the suffering that people are feeling who are 
getting sick and dying. People are losing loved ones. People are losing their jobs, their homes, their life savings, their businesses. Like there's so much fucking chaos going on. That's not funny at all. But I think one of the main things that we can see at times like this are just how absolutely mind-bogglingly absurd our world is because so many of the things that are going on things like seeing Trump seeing the president of the United States just say so many crazy things and says one thing one day says the opposite another day he just blatantly lies like seeing things like that happening at that level and the chaos that ensues in our societies around us and what we're seeing in the news media is there there's just this high level of pure absurdity to what's going on and i looked up the definition for absurd when i was writing my notes for this and the words that the definition uses to define what absurd is are unreasonable, illogical, inappropriate, ridiculous, and foolish. And I think that in so many ways, those words are great characterizations of the world that we're living in and so much of what's going on. And, you know, my last episode was all about conspiracy theories because there's a lot of them going around right now. You know, when times are uncertain and people start asking questions about what the fuck's going on, inevitably, you're going to probably come across some of the grand conspiracies and the work of the peddlers of those conspiracies and... Since my last episode, I've had quite a number of conversations with friends and people continuing to share things of a conspiratorial nature with me. And while I don't want to spend too much time going into that stuff because I dedicated the whole last episode to it, I will say that many conspiracies have been proven in the past to be real. And many of the conspiracies that are going around right now around the pandemic and who or what is responsible, while I don't personally believe in them, not, not fully, uh, because I, th- I think that one of the main problems with most conspiracy theories is that While they contain a lot of truth, they also oversimplify the reality of the situations that we're faced with and our world, and they oversimplify the complexity of what's actually happening. So they miss the mark on a lot of things in their attempts to answer what's going on but they're also really good at 
highlighting this absurdity that we're surrounded with. And while governments and corporations are notoriously terrible historically and currently, as we can see in a lot of ways with what's going on, they're terrible and people have really good reasons to not trust the government or their institutions or the mainstream media and to seek out alternative sources for information. I think that it's more important right now in a time like this during a pandemic to seek out the opinions of people who are qualified experts, which I mean, I'm not that, you know, but I'm also not claiming to be, and I'm not claiming to have all the answers, but you see the, some of the main people who peddle these conspiracy theories, while they might sound like their heart is in the right place and they're fighting the good fight against the governments and the corporations and the rich and powerful elite of the world who are really controlling things and that they're on the side of the people and the little guys. They also say a lot of batshit, insane, crazy things like someone like Alex Jones, who is a documentary filmmaker and a radio show host on his brand that he has called InfoWars. Like, <laughs> this guy literally just said on his show recently, and I saw a video of this, that he's like, he's looking at his neighbors and he is preparing to eat his fucking neighbors because he's not going to let his daughters go hungry and who knows maybe that's a reasonable response to what's happening if this situation this pandemic were to further dissolve into social more social collapse and people don't have food available then yeah, maybe you need to be prepared to eat your fucking neighbors, which I'm not. But again, th these things just show the absurdity of what's going on right now. And I highly suggest that rather than listening to people like Alex Jones, if you're worried about some of these conspiracy theories that are going on and stuff like that, I highly advise you to seek out interviews and videos that are the opinions of experts in many different fields and to not base your opinion on the stories of individual so-called experts like the woman in this documentary pandemic that's going around that from what I've seen what I've read after looking into it afterward because I, I watched this documentary 
Um, she's been thoroughly discredited and it's more important now than ever that we don't forward information like that and share information like that without doing further research and doing our best with the time that we have to at least try to to verify information from multiple expert sources before sharing it because in a time like this if we're sharing information that isn't true or it's breeding fear in other people and it's it's just increasing the distrust in governments and institutions that can lead to very real consequences of not only more people dying from going like not caring and going out into crowded places in this pandemic and spreading this virus that's going around, but also in furthering along and making worse the economic devastation that is happening right now and is going to continue to happen with the shutdown of the economy. But I really feel the the fear and the uncertainty and the inability to to trust and the inability to like figure out what the fuck is happening like it's so hard to tell what is real and what's not it really is so you know i might be saying like do your best to try to figure it out for yourself but i'm i'm not suggesting for a moment that that's an easy task like we're living in a crazy time we're living in a crazy world and honestly like part of the reason it can be challenging for me to figure out what i want to say for the next episode of my podcast is that i'm feeling that myself i'm feeling all of this uncertainty and fear and i'm extremely grateful right now that i personally don't have the added element and challenges of not knowing how I'm going to pay my rent or put food on my table. And so that can just really make me feel like I'm sure some of you might be feeling as well challenged to even speak about what's going on at all when I know that I'm speaking from a place of privilege that a lot of other people don't have and that the reality of this situation for so many people is a completely different reality than what I'm experiencing. And I think that's an important concept for all of us to really reflect on not only the the different circumstances or the different reality that we're each experiencing as individuals and different 
groups of people, like I'm in the group that got laid off and I thankfully have a government benefit program that is paying my bills right now. I'm so fucking grateful for that. And there's people who are essential workers, many of which are low wage, that they're not getting that. They have to continue going to work and risking their lives or the lives of their loved ones if they catch this virus or they pass it along. And then there's people who are still working. A lot of them are able to work from home some of which they're kind of fine and not affected too much other than now they have to do their work from home and do meetings on Zoom and shit like that. But then there's a whole nother section of people who have to work at home and now school their kids and take care of them 24-7. So the situations that we're experiencing during this pandemic are different realities, but there's this wider and very political reality that different groups of people in our society are living in and experiencing and creating completely different realities that are ultimately tearing the stability of our institutions and our world apart in a lot of ways. And the more I read about this stuff, the more I learn about this stuff, I think on the one hand, the better. It's extremely important for us to be informed about what's happening in the world. But it's also scary. Like the more I learn the more this deeply ominous feeling builds inside me of what's to come if we continue on the path that we're on. And from what I'm gathering, from listening to interviews with experts and talking about the political landscape and what's going to happen you know, in the next several months, in the next few years, is that there's a very likely potential for further political destabilization, you know, the relationship between the world's two biggest superpowers, the US and China, is deteriorating very quickly with what's going on with this pandemic. There's massive disinformation campaigns going on with not only some of the the bigger conspiracy kind of stories or um, you know documentaries and interviews that are going on but with evidence that there's state-sponsored disinformation campaigns coming out of places like Russia and China and much of what's going on stands to continue to increase the social and the economic inequalities that we see in our world. And there's a potential for the, the continued 
rise of and acceleration of the rise of authoritarianism in the world. There's potential for social collapse and things like famine. And I'm scared. Like, my goal isn't to scare you or make you depressed or anxious because of this stuff. But we really do need to be having more conversations and better conversations about this stuff if we're going to make any progress on creating solutions to the biggest problems that we face. And it is scary. It's just, it's inherently frightening to think about the potential for social collapse and things like famines, but the normal world that we experience and the picture that we have painted for us by the media and advertisers and all of these industries out there that make billions of dollars off us to keep us entertained and distracted, they create a false representation, a false model of reality for us and keep us distracted from what's most important and having these types of conversations. Like my girlfriend and I started watching the third season of the show Cosmos um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And if you haven't seen it before, I highly recommend it. It's a really great show. He explains not only things about the history of the universe and the formation of our planet and the history of culture, but he also goes into the foundations of our species and the development of our brain, the way we think and the way we organize society and culture and the power struggles that have come along with that throughout the history of our species. And one of the most exciting things about that show and about the time that we're living in, especially if we really pay attention to the important things that are going on in our world with our politics, with our governments, our institutions, one of the most exciting parts of our history and our collective story that is continuing to unfold in front of us right now is that this is also a story of heroes. Think of the the doctors and nurses and the essential workers that are on the front lines of fighting this pandemic and keeping the most important parts of our infrastructure and supply chains going right now. Many of them are doing so because they have no other option, but many of them are doing so because they're brave and courageous people that are literally risking their lives and the lives of loved ones in order to 
fix things and in order to help and to save other people. And this story can, at least for the last few hundred years, be looked at through the lens of science and politics that we're seeing being raised up in this time when all of the other distractions fall away. We have nowhere to turn but to the science and trying to find the truth of what's going on and the politics of what's going on as well. And in the fourth episode of this series, Cosmos, the third season, Neil deGrasse Tyson tells the story of this guy, Nikolai Vavilov, who was a renowned Russian geneticist. And he and his team were working on finding solutions to the famine that was happening in the Soviet Union under Stalin. And like so much of our history, through so many stories, many of which this series, Cosmos, talks about, the story of our species is one that is just filled with struggles for power and wars. And like he talks about how since the beginning of recorded history, there has pretty much always been famines going on around the world where like many, many large groups of people and in many cases millions of people have died from famine. Like millions of people consistently dying of starving to death throughout our history. And there's just this deep struggle between scientific discovery and truth that goes back even further before the scientific renaissance of the last few hundred years there's a struggle between truth and power between truth and corruption and much of that corruption can be plainly seen in the realm of politics and in the the ongoing story of the human condition and the struggle between good and evil that has been with us forever, a struggle between the best and worst parts of ourselves. It's a struggle between greed and selfishness and vicious competition and between cooperation and compassion and empathy and love. And while I believe that everything in our world and within us is a result of evolutionary biological reasons why things are the way that they are, that were advantages for survival at one time, they're killing us now and they're destabilizing all of human society and our planet, the biological life support systems of our planet. And whether you believe that it is the potential corruption of the human soul, or you believe that it's 
purely things that are going on in our mind and in our psychology and our biology and our physiology, the corruption that is tearing apart this world in a lot of ways is based on our foundational beliefs of who we are and what we are and how we can or should or need to operate in the world. And if we want to change or fix the problems in our lives as individuals and in our world, then we need new beliefs that lead us to new thoughts and new and better communication, not only for our relationships with others, but they need to start with our own relationship with ourselves. And it's only through conversation and the battleground of ideas and debate and challenging each other's beliefs that can lead us to new paradigms and new ways of thinking and acting as individuals and collectively that can eventually lead us to a new world because our world is sick and we as a species and we as individuals are sick and it's so bizarre because it's like this sickness that exists in a different dimension like not in this physical reality that we live in but in the reality of our mind and our psyche our beliefs in this non-tangible non-materialistic realm can manifest themselves as sicknesses in our bodies as individuals and sicknesses in our communities and in our societies and in our world and that's what we're seeing in so many ways a friend of mine named Katie Teague is an amazing documentary filmmaker and I highly recommend checking out some of her documentaries if you want a good idea of some of the things that are going on in the world and how they're related to our beliefs she has a documentary called money and life that's all about money and how it's created and how it affects the world that we live in and a more recent documentary that she put out is called remember and I think it's a particularly relevant one for what's going on right now because it's all about grief and the ancient practices and lost wisdom around healing grief. And we tend to think of grief as being associated with death when you lose a loved one or a pet, but Grief is actually something that we as humans go through the process of grief. We as humans go through no matter what we lose. And that could be a job, a relationship, an object that you really liked. Or in the case of 
pretty much everybody in the world right now, like losing your sense of safety and normality, or even in a lot of ways with the disinformation that's going on, our grip on reality or what the fuck can we trust or what can we know is real. And so this documentary called Remember that's all about grief and how to go through the grieving process might be really relevant for for you if you're grieving or for somebody that you know. It could help them a lot. But she's working on a new documentary right now about climate change and it's called As Temperatures Rise. And I watched a trailer for it recently and it looks really, really good. But there was a couple quotes in the trailer that really stood out to me in relation to what I'm saying about how it's our foundational beliefs and the competitive nature of those beliefs that are playing out as the source of the biggest challenges that we're seeing in our world and the paradigms that are driving them. And I really think that this is at the heart of what we need to focus on as individuals and together if we're going to fix the problems that we're faced with. And so I'll share these couple quotes with you that I wrote down. One is from this woman. She says that all of this modern world paradigm and all of its systems, economic, education, health, and just on and on and on, all of that arose without putting life at the very center of all decision-making, of all visioning, of everything. You think you know what it is to be human, but you don't. All you know is what it's like to be a human in this power over paradigm. And she's speaking about how we humans operate as if it's okay and even desirable to have unlimited power over every other species on this planet and attempt to exert our power over nature itself. And she continues that human beings can be a completely different being under another paradigm. And the trailer goes on to this guy saying that we need to return to the perspectives that many indigenous cultures hold and find ways to incorporate them into the collapse or the transition of so many of our systems we're currently seeing. And that perspective is that our two primary objectives to consider in how we survive and thrive are first and foremost to be responsible stewards of taking care of this beautiful, magical planet that birthed us and to take care of the future generations of not just our children, but of every species on earth. 
and that might sound like a tall order, but it's absolutely necessary, particularly that we take care of the species that we rely on for survival and for the survival of the biological support systems that they and we rely on. If we're going to do that, if we're going to solve the problems that we're faced with, then we need to rely on scientists and experts. And of course, there's lots of information out there that shows conflicting science and conflicting ideas and beliefs of what's right or wrong. But that's why it's more important than ever that we have these conversations and that we create spaces for them to happen outside of you know a global pandemic forcing us to pay more attention to scientists and we obviously we can't revert back to being hunter-gatherers to take care of the planet but we can look at these different perspectives and these paradigms and find ways to incorporate them into our culture, our society, and our beliefs. Because right now, we're currently failing horribly at the most important things that we need to rely on in order to survive. And I think that one of the main things we as individuals, as regular people need to focus on and talk about and learn a lot more about is economics. And I'm by no means a fucking expert in economics in any way, shape or form. But I came across a TED talk several years ago by an economist, this woman named Kate Raworth. And I think it's very fitting because she talks about how Economics are the language of public policy. Economics dominates the decision-making for the future for not only individuals, but also small and large businesses alike and national governments and international organizations. And so our individual and collective beliefs and our political beliefs about economics and how we should spend our money, our taxes, who we should elect is very often based on promises of how our taxes are going to be spent or taxes are going to be cut. And so much of the corporate and political corruption, or almost all of it, you could say in one way or another leads back to money to economics to the financial incentives for the richest corporations and the billionaires that operate them to do whatever they can to control our governments and institutions and the laws that are created or changed that govern the the rules that we play this game by the rules that will determine our ability to survive, let alone if we'll thrive and if and how we'll address the 
glaring inequalities and injustices that are present in our political systems and our institutions and our society and our world. And one of the main beliefs in this area that many of you may have heard before is the term trickle-down economics. And it's this idea that if you cut taxes for the rich and the corporations and the billionaires, that the tax cuts are going to lead to less wasteful government spending and more jobs created, more businesses, and that those advantages are going to translate into the the money trickling down to the rest of us in society. And we've seen for the past couple or few generations under that paradigm and the policies that are driven by it are just fucking wrong. They're failing. And the only way we're going to fix the issues that we all face is if we find ways to have conversations about this stuff and about what are some new things that we can try, right? And there are many people, including many super rich people, that they see that the the system's broken and that we need to fix it. And we need to we need to do things like rather than sharing conspiracy theories about the people at the top that are fucking controlling everything, we need to listen to and have and share conversations with the people who have extreme amounts of wealth that are saying, look, here's the problem we need to fix. And to have those conversations on a much larger scale in our society. And that can't happen without regular people paying attention to that kind of stuff and supporting that stuff and asking for that stuff because that's what translates into politicians paying attention because of what the public cares about and what the public demands. And there's this guy, Mark Cuban, who is a billionaire. He's an entrepreneur and an investor who owns the NBA team, the Dallas Mavericks. And he was on the Daily Show with Trevor Noah recently. And something that he said was that in the past, a lot of people would talk about trickle-down economics. I think one of the lessons we're going to learn from all of this is that it's time for trickle-up economics. We're only as strong as the base layer of all of our employees. All of those people who struggle, who get paid hour by hour, and who don't know how many hours they're going to get, if we don't take care of them, there is no economy. And we're learning that very quickly right now. But if we're going to have a conversation about trickle-up economics and what that is, then as far as I understand it, that's inherently a conversation about taxing the rich more to 
give more of the wealth that's being generated in our society to the masses of people at the bottom. And that's one of the age old struggles in our society and of being a human in general. It's this idea of the rich versus the poor and the politics of how that plays out. Like one of the best quotes I've ever heard, I don't remember where I heard it from, but it's always stuck with me is that politics is the art of getting votes from the poor and campaign donations from the rich by convincing them both that you'll protect them from each other. And I don't think there could be anything more beautiful in its simplicity to explain one of the foundational challenges at the heart of so many of the individual and collective challenges that we're faced with. And one of the main ideas of what that could look like or needs to look like, many people would say, is this idea of average citizens getting something called a universal basic income, which essentially guarantees that everybody has enough money to cover their basic foundational needs like rent and food or at least like a good chunk of it so that we can then have more safety and security as a society and less poverty and hardship and then from that foundation we can go and we can compete with each other but what that would require is obviously a lot of fucking money to pay for it. And there's a lot of ideological battles about that you can't obviously take money from the rich and give it to the poor or distribute it to everybody and just give people free money for not doing anything and not earning it. But one of the monk debates that I listened to recently was about whether or not we should raise taxes on the rich. And so on the side arguing that we should, there was this one guy who's a well-known economist, I forget what his name was, and there was a former prime minister or president of Greece, whichever one they have. And then on the arguing against it side, it was Newt Gingrich, who is this, as far as I know, Republican political pundit. And then this other guy, who's also an economist that worked in the Reagan administration. And so the, the side arguing for the debate resolution that we should raise the taxes more on the rich, they won the debate. They basically won over a 12% increase of the audience for a total of 70% of the audience agreeing that we should raise the taxes on the rich. So it was only 58% at the start of the debate. But one of the most interesting things that I recall from the debate was that the economist on the side arguing against it, that we shouldn't raise the taxes on the rich near the end of the debate, and his closing statements, he talked about how 
Warren Buffett, who's one of the richest men in the world, he says sort of like Mark Cuban, this other billionaire, that he believes he should pay more taxes and he doesn't pay enough taxes. And this economist was essentially arguing that we need to not just raise the taxes on the rich because they're rich. They have all the lawyers and accountants that you could possibly need and they just put all their shit in tax havens and then the government doesn't get the money anyway so it just doesn't work. So what we actually need to do is we need to reform the tax system which would result in essentially, I, I think he said Warren Buffett paid like, I don't know, several million dollars for taxes this one year. But if we reform the tax system, then it would be more fair for everybody across the board. And people like Warren Buffett that same year would have paid like $10 billion in taxes instead of several million dollars. And that he thinks that that's what we should do and that that's fair. So essentially, he's arguing that the rich should pay more in taxes as well. It's just a difference of how we accomplish that goal and don't have them just flee and hide their money in tax havens and then we don't get the money anyway, right? But the the point that I'm trying to make here is that if we have people like Mark Cuban and Warren Buffett saying things like that, that we need to pay more in taxes, they don't pay enough, we need to stop trying this idea that has clearly failed of trickle-down economics and we have to actually take care of the people at the bottom and give trickle-up economics a try. If we have people in those positions of wealth and power who are having those conversations like just imagine if the millions of people that are watching all these fucking conspiracy documentaries and sharing those were watching the debates and interviews and focusing some energy and attention on elevating those discussions then we might actually see some positive changes take place because there really is no easy fix for the things that are going on right now. It's going to take time and effort and sustained organization from more people, more regular people, if we're going to tackle the challenges that we're faced with. And one of the scariest things to me is the idea that if you look at history and you look at the trends that we're on right now of where we're headed is that things tend to need to get much, much worse before anybody will pay attention to what's going on. And you see that right now with this pandemic. People are forced to pay attention more to politics and science and to this idea that there is no way that we can accomplish what we need to as a species 
by relying on our own governments that we need well-funded experts and policymakers in collaborative international institutions to tackle or address the grand issues that we're faced with down the road like global pandemics and terrorism and the increasing threat of nuclear war and climate change and things like artificial intelligence like we cannot solve these issues without global institutions that allow our national governments to collaborate with other national governments and we need all hands on deck like as many of us as possible to pay attention to these larger issues that are going on we're in a time of great change and great opportunity right now, probably greater than anything our species has ever faced. And as many experts are pointing out, unfortunately to the deaf ears of those in power, we absolutely need to make major changes to our economic system and the beliefs that underlie them and i don't have all the answers right like if you're still listening probably this is bringing up for many of you like it does for me like cool like what the fuck am i supposed to do about that like this is too big that's for other people to figure out and decide but this is the stuff that wars have been fought about for the history of our species. And the times that we're living in are inherently dangerous. And while this is extremely complex, and it is scary, and it's confusing, it makes our fucking, if you're like me, makes your fucking brain hurt. This is also an exciting time of great opportunity because we get to create new systems. We have to. And while the main driving force of capitalism has created more wealth than the world has ever seen, and in many ways... This is the most peaceful and prosperous time that humanity has ever existed in. We're also faced with many great challenges that are trending us down the path towards collapse and ultimately potential extinction. Like 99.99999% of every species that's ever existed has experienced and in many ways capitalism is driving us towards destruction and this is obviously some heavy shit you know it's easier to just ignore it but i think it's really important that we have these conversations and we understand what's really going on at the heart of the biggest challenges that we're faced with and that we have a language to talk to each other about it with. And one of the 
main languages that we've really lost in public discourse and the media is this idea of class struggle that the competing interests of different classes are actually a really good way to talk about and dissect and understand the issues that we're faced with. But anytime you hear that conversation come up with maybe people like Bernie Sanders or something like that, the, the media and the rich go, oh, you're starting to, you, you're trying to start a class war, but that's what this is. That's what's happening. And it's been the case throughout all of history, this class struggle. And we need to have the language that's necessary to understand what's actually going on. And if you want a really good example, a really good breakdown and explanation of what's happening in the politics that lead to things like this pandemic being worse than it needs to be because we don't have the resources and the response from the institutions that are necessary because they get defunded by the politicians and the ideological people with so much wealth and power that fund them and help to get them in office and get the laws written for themselves. If you want to see a non-conspiratorial explanation, I suggest you look at, there's a documentary that's called Requiem for the American Dream. And it's a series of interviews with one of the most world-renowned public intellectuals and political theorists and political dissidents named Noam Chomsky. And he's an incredibly intelligent guy. And he breaks down step-by-step step all the main big issues of how the rich and the corporations control our politics and our laws and through them, all of us. And in this, he gives you a really good explanation of how these beliefs are baked into our government and our institutions and our societies, even into like the Declaration of Independence. He explains how, you know, if the masses are able to all just vote for it, then they'll essentially vote to take away money from the rich to give to themselves. And so the rich obviously are like, not going to fucking let that happen. And he really gives you a window into the psychology of powerful people who live in a different reality than the the rest of us, the normal people. And that they very openly, very publicly suggested things like they need to direct the public's attention to superficial bullshit so that they'll be kept out of our hair and we can go on and run things however we want. And that 
there's even this one quote that he shares that one of the leading public intellectuals of the early 1920s wrote about how the public must be put in its place so that each of us may live free of the trampling and the roar of a bewildered herd. So it's like to many people in places of wealth and power that we can't even imagine, they live in a different reality. They're driven by a different psychology. But we have to figure out ways to communicate with each other to solve issues because this type of class struggle and class warfare shit has been going on forever. Like you can look at history, look at wars, look at social collapses, look at the political and economic injustices. It's like it's it's there. And I think to a certain degree, we all understand but what we tend to not understand and we don't want to look at is our own place in this whole mess in keeping this in place. And when you see things like these grand conspiracies of the people in control, much of which is true to a large degree, what often is skipped over and that we don't want to look at is that we're you know, regular people are not just victims of the systems that we live in. And, you know, one of the most prominent conspiracy theories about whether you call it the Illuminati or the New World Order of who's controlling us, it usually shows, you've, you may have seen them or you can look up New World Order and look at pictures of it. You'll see this diagram of the rich and the government and the corporations and the bankers at the top and the the religions underneath them. It's only in the past the past few several hundred years that religion has lost a lot of its prominence and dominance in our society because of the struggle against science and truth. And you know, as you get further down to the bottom of the pyramid, you have the working class and then you have what you have, you know, between the rich and the government and the business corporate leaders and stuff like that. You have the military as their fucking goon squad to protect them from the poor. And then you have the working class, the middle class and the poor underneath them. And that's usually where the pyramid stops. But one of my favorite things that I've come across in recent years was this YouTube channel called The Juice Media. And they produced this show called The Rap News. And they would rap about uh, current topics with some fucking dope beats. And it was really, really well produced, really awesome. And there's one episode i think it's the 30th episode one of the last episodes they did because they they stopped producing this a couple years ago um it was about the new world order and they show this pyramid in it that typical pyramid of the power structures and you know us at the bottom but it goes on to extend that pyramid to show that 
you know, the working class and the poor that they label us as debt slaves, which we all are in many ways to the banking and financial system and those that run it, instead of just having us at the bottom, they actually extend the pyramid and we're in the middle. And there are many other levels that lie below where we normally like to think of ourselves being because historically speaking you know women and minorities have been repressed which they continue to be in a lot of ways but beyond that it's the the oppression and control of every other fucking species on this planet and just the natural environment itself like we have to see where we actually are in this system, where we actually are as contributors to the world that we find ourselves in, if we're going to change it, if we're going to fix things. And it's hard to do. It's hard to shift your perspective to look at the ugly fucking truth of how we, so many of us, Myself included, in a lot of ways, I'm not. Uh, I'm not condemning anybody specifically, but how we we contribute to the issues that we're all facing because of our allowing ourselves to be distracted by the superficial bullshit that is being constantly fed at us, and the creators of this rap news said about this image that they created that by not recognizing our own place in the pyramid or power, we inadvertently support the existence of the very structure of injustice, which we seek to end. And we can't expect to make the world a better place and leave literally even a livable planet to future generations if we don't pay attention to this stuff. If we prefer to engage in paying attention to and talking about things like so many millions of people would rather talk about fucking Game of Thrones and what's happening in some fictional universe rather than the, the very real drama in the reality that we're facing. And so I want to focus on this idea of the, the language that we need to have in order to understand and address these issues better. And I listened to a talk several years ago that's really stuck with me that it was by this guy, David Simon, at the... 2013 Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And David Simon used to be a journalist covering politics. He became a filmmaker, creator of the really popular show The Wire um, that was based on the very real political challenges and things that underlie the crime in the city that I think he lived in, like Baltimore. And David Simon also has won like a $500,000 
what's known as the Genius Grant from an organization called the MacArthur Foundation. And I found these words have really stuck with me for quite a long time as well. So I want to I wanna share a few of the notes I have of what he said. When capital wins unequivocally, when it gets everything it asks for, that may be the ultimate tragedy of capitalism in our time which is that it has achieved its dominance without regard to a social compact, without being connected to any other metric for human progress. We understand profit. In my country, which is America, we measure things by profit. We listen to the Wall Street analysts. They tell us what we're supposed to do every quarter. The quarterly report is God. Turn to face God. Turn to face Mecca. You know, did you make your number? Did you not make your number? Did you want your bonus? Do you not want your bonus? And that notion that capital is the metric, profit is the metric by which we're going to measure the health of our society is one of the fundamental mistakes of the last 30 years. We've descended into what can only be described as greed. This is just greed. This is an inability to see that we're all connected. In my country, you're seeing a horror show. You're seeing a retrenchment in terms of family income. You're seeing the abandonment of basic services, such as a functional public education. You're seeing the underclass hunted through a war on dangerous drugs, allegedly, that is in fact merely a war on the poor and has turned us into the most incarcerated state in the history of mankind at this point in terms of sheer numbers of people we've put in American prisons and the percentage of Americans we've put into prisons. No other country on the face of the earth jails people at the number and rate that we are. We have become something other than what we claim for the American dream. And all because of our inability to basically share. To even contemplate a socialist impulse. Socialism's a dirty word in my country. I have to give that disclaimer at the beginning of every speech. Oh, by the way, I'm not a Marxist. I've lived through the 20th century. I don't believe that a state-run economy can be as viable as market capitalism in producing mass wealth. I don't. I'm utterly committed to the idea of capitalism has to be the way we generate mass wealth in the coming century. That argument is over. But the idea that it's not going to be married to a social compact that how you distribute the benefits of capitalism isn't going to include everyone in the society to a reasonable extent, that's astonishing to me. And from that, capitalism's about to seize defeat from the jaws of victory all by its own hand. That's the astonishing end of this story, unless we reverse course. Maybe socialism... And the socialist impulse has to be addressed again, and it has to be married as it was married in the 30s and in the 40s and even into the 50s to the engine that is capitalism. Mistaking capitalism for a blueprint 
as to how to build the society, I think to me, it strikes me as the really dangerous idea in a bad way. Capitalism is a remarkable engine, again, for producing wealth. It's a great tool to have in your toolbox if you're trying to build a society and have that society advance. You wouldn't want to go forward at this point without it. But it's not a blueprint for how to build a just society. There are other metrics besides that quarterly profit report that we have suggested that the market will solve such things as environmental concerns, as our racial divides, as our class distinctions, as the problems with educating and incorporating one generation of workers into the economy after another when that economy is changing. The idea that it's going to heed all of the human concerns and still maximize profit is juvenile. It's a juvenile notion, and it's still being argued in my country, passionately. And we're going down the tubes. And it terrifies me because I'm astonished at how comfortable we are absolving ourselves of what is basically a moral choice. Are we all in this together, or are we not? And that's the great horror show. What are we going to do with all these people that we've managed to marginalize. The last job of capitalism, having won all the battles against labor, having acquired the ultimate authority, almost the ultimate moral authority over what's a good idea or what's not, or what's valued or what's not. The last journey for capital in my country has been to buy the electoral process the one venue for reform that remained to Americans. Ultimately, right now, capital has effectively purchased the government. So I don't know what we do if we can't actually control the representative government that we claim will manifest the popular will. Even if we start having the same sentiments that I'm arguing for now, I'm not sure we can affect them anymore in the same way that we could at the rise of the Great Depression. So maybe it will be a brick. But I hope not. And then he goes on to a Q&A session and he answers someone's question that the solution to these problems that we're faced with is not no government. Not in this day and age. There's just too much at stake. And certainly the solution isn't bad government. The only solution is to make government better, is to actually engage. Representative democracy, it's either your government or it's not. And if it's not, then you've got a problem more fundamental than anything. But if it is your government and it's failing and its institutions are failing, that's a call to arms to engage, not to fold your arms. We either make this work or we're in much worse trouble than you think. And so I think that the only way we can really address the challenges that we're faced with is to begin to understand this lost language of class struggle 
And not only that, this, as it always has been, politics is a entanglement of different groups of people with different levels of obviously wealth and power, but different priorities and competing interests. And that politics is this game. It's this dance of convincing both of those groups of people that they'll protect them from each other. But then as we clearly see time and time again, they act in the interests of the rich rather than the people and the corporations because our world is driven by the language of economics that that woman I mentioned, that economist Kate Raworth talks about and that it's the foundational beliefs that underlie that language and the struggles that come from it that are what we need to understand and what we need to address. Because as I imagine many of you have heard before, this idea that having economic policies and a belief that we can have infinite growth on a planet with finite resources is incompatible with reality. But that's what we do. That's what we try to do. That's how our system is built. And this woman, this economist, she talks about that we currently have economies that are designed to grow whether or not they make us thrive when what we need are economies that make us thrive whether or not they grow. And that we need to break our addiction to this growth and we need to redesign money and finance and business and government to be in the service of people and to create economies that are regenerative and distributive by design rather than what we have now where they are centralized and funnel all of the wealth and power up to very few people. Part of the reason that we created political systems and how we use them in the first place, I've heard it said, is in order to save ourselves from our own worst impulses. And it's been a good run. And we should be extremely grateful for the levels of relative stability that we've had with the systems in place as they are. But it's extremely naive to think that they'll last or that we can just continue to sit back as if this is some sort of spectator sport that we just get to watch and we are not players in this game. Because aside from things like what's happening right now, like this pandemic, we have a lot of other existential threats that we're faced with that we're going to need to continue to rely more and more on the research and the opinions and the public conversations between 
scientists and economists and experts and more people being engaged so that we can fix things, we can overcome them, we can transcend them. And on one hand, I kind of like don't understand how more people aren't interested in engaging with what's happening in the real world rather than these false realities that we've had created around us because the ability to continue doing that I don't think is going to last I think that this pandemic is practice for us for what's to come and you know one of the most famous science communicators ever was this guy Carl Sagan and something that he said was that We've arranged a society based on science and technology in which almost no one understands anything about science and technology. And this combustible mixture of ignorance and power sooner or later is going to blow up in our faces. And I think that's partially what we're seeing right now. And that despite it being so terrible in many ways, it's also, in some ways, it's good because it's necessary. For whatever the reasons are, we need chaos in order to be able to slow down and think and start talking about what the fuck is actually important. Because many of us have a really hard time looking at ourselves and being honest with ourselves and planning for the long term rather than acting in the service of short-term gratification in the moment and being honest with ourselves about our limitations. And like we're we're monkeys, we're great apes. We are not as advanced as we think we are. Like we might be in many ways, scientifically and technologically, but individually, socially, our politics, our our society, our culture, the way we think, we are barely out of the jungle. Like, I was looking up some information about the history of literacy while I was making notes for this podcast. And if we really think about it, We still, to this day, we were taught in school and we continue to largely teach in school that literacy is being able to read and write and do basic math and more recently have basic computer skills to function in society, in a job, in your written communications, to do the things you need to do. Like, that's literacy. But that's like, generally speaking, part of the reason that it's so dangerous to have a society that so deeply depends on science and technology when so few of us understand it at all is that for all intents and purposes, most of us for the society that we live in now, we're not literate. We're illiterate when it comes to science, technology, And more recently, you know, the ability to 
learn and write code for the things that control our lives in so many ways is a form of power that most of us don't have these days. And we're also illiterate in power. Most of us don't understand power. And understanding things like power and business and law and politics and economics, those things aren't new. But most of us are not literate. Most of us don't really understand that much about those things. And being so easily distracted from those things is something that is going to, I think continue to blow up in our faces as we move forward and as we face even greater challenges than we're facing with this pandemic. And one of my favorite comedians, his name is Andrew Schultz. And I watched a video of his recently where he's just straight up talking about how we fucking deserve this. It was in a video called Takashi 69 and Trump are the same and he's talking about how Takashi 69 should run for president and it's fucking funny you, you should watch it and again it speaks to just the sheer absurdity of this moment that we're living in and one of the things that he says at the end of the video is that we deserve this we're a society that demands to be entertained every moment of the day for free this is what we asked for and when you want a circus you exalt the clowns so enjoy the show and we need to understand that it's not just the people at the top who have bought the government and make the laws and have so much power and wealth and influence and control, but that they don't control everything. They don't control our daily choices and our daily actions. Only we do. And we have to see where we each are in this story and in supporting these systems and these grand issues of our time that we're faced with. And so... If you're still listening, I want to thank you and I want to also acknowledge you because this is scary stuff. This is really heavy stuff and I don't want to leave you feeling hopeless or pessimistic about what's going on. I don't want to have you feeling depressed or anxious, but sometimes those feelings kind of come along with paying attention to reality and I think that at least in part we have those feelings because they drive us to act to actually fix the problems not only in our own life and inside ourselves but in our systems of how we interact with each other in our relationships and in our society and part of the reason that we see the proliferation of these conspiracy theories that are going around, especially in times like this, is that it's a lot easier and somewhat more comforting to think and believe that like someone or some small group of people 
must be in control of this fucking mess that we find ourselves in as a civilization. Because while it's scary to think that there's these quote-unquote evil people out there controlling everything, it's fucking way more terrifying to think that nobody's in control and that barely anyone even really understands what's going on. And we have a choice each and every day. You know, most people, most of us, and including me, for much of my life, we spend most of our free time and energy on self-indulgent comforts that are irrelevant to the things that are really important in the big scheme of things, in the big picture. But we have a choice each and every day to learn and focus on things that are important. And it's obviously easier said than done. Life is stressful. Shit's fucking crazy that's going on right now, especially, you know, people have a lot of responsibility with kids and their jobs and all sorts of stuff. It's not easy, but it's my understanding that this is the price that we pay for being alive is that we can choose to be focused on ourselves and be individualistic and selfish. And that might be for ourselves and our family, but that's still like a very small sphere. Or we can choose to see the bigger picture and we can choose to see that we're all embedded in a community or many communities and we're in a society and we're in a nation. We're, we're in this world together and we obviously like you need to take care of we need to take care of our own shit at home and you know be good parents and be a a good person and a good employee or maybe you're a business owner and you have employees you need to take care of as well but we can't continue to neglect the fact that we're also citizens and we need to be involved in politics we need to be involved in what's happening in our neighborhoods our communities our cities our countries our society and our world because if we don't if more of us don't remember to focus on that more then i fear that we're headed towards an absolutely disastrous future but Although these are scary times, there is a ton of reason for hope and optimism for our future. And each of us is a node in a network. We are connected to so many people, especially with the internet. And there are so, so many amazing people, amazing organizations out there, and incredibly good-hearted and intelligent people that are working on solving these problems. And each of us can use our networks and our own power 
to rather than feel like we're just controlled by these centralized top-down systems regardless of how much truth there may be in those rather than focus on that stuff we can choose each and every day to learn about and focus on and support the research and the people who are actually working to solve the problems that we're faced with and we're really in a race against time you know this pandemic is not anywhere near close to how bad it could be and it's not a matter of if it's only a matter of when the next pandemic is going to hit and we have all of these other existential threats and grand challenges as well like climate change that we get to choose each and every day what are we going to do are we going to just distract ourselves from the stress and reality of the challenges that we face and just day after day after day focus on ourselves and just relaxing and entertaining ourselves outside of the stresses that life brings us that will lead us to much greater challenges and stresses down the road or we can subject ourselves to spending a little bit it doesn't have to be anything crazy just a little bit of extra time and money learning about the problems we are faced with and supporting the people that are actually working to fix them like we have so much power and so much choice and it's a shame that so many people give that away and act like there's these other people in control and there's nothing we can do and part of the reason that we do that is because it's fucking convenient that we don't have to take responsibility for helping to actually fix anything because we can just shrug it off and say, ah, there's nothing we can do about it, you know, but there's amazing people, incredible organizations doing amazing work and they just, they need more volunteers. They need more funds, you know, and we can, we can do things ourselves with some of the free time that we have to do that volunteer work or, you know, rather than going out for dinner when hopefully we'll be able to do that again sometime soon or rather than going out for dinner or to a movie or having a couple drinks out, you know, maybe once a month we don't do that and we donate $10 to an organization that's doing great work. And, you know, if you don't have the time or the money, you can you can still learn. We can learn pretty much anything we want for pretty much free on the internet these days you can learn you can you can support people's work by sharing it and helping them get more volunteers and funding that way and we can engage in the political process more and get more people and funding more resources allocated to solving the problems that we're faced with and so to any of my friends that I've recently 
had some conversations with about these conspiracy theories that are going around or to anybody listening that is worried about that type of information that you may have come across, I just, I really, really encourage you to get your information from more trustworthy sources. Some of my favorite ones are places like the Monk Debates and Dialogues. They have some amazing guests on talking about what's going on right now in relation to coronavirus. There's an organization called Future Crunch that they focus on giving really good news about the advances in science and technology and public policy and shifts in our culture and all sorts of great stuff. They are publishing a coronavirus daily dozen where they're every day or two, they're posting a dozen stories of great things that are happening in relation to coronavirus and you know one of my favorite youtube channels that gives like really amazing well animated and researched science and technology and philosophy um, videos is a channel called kurzgesagt it means in a nutshell in german and i'll put the names of some of these in the show notes if you want to see how to spell that but you know, some of my favorite places to get information from are places like the Good Food Institute, Citizens University, people like James Clear, who's an expert in habits, TED Talks and NPR's TED Radio Hour. Um, if you want to get really in-depth political stuff that is really well-researched, there's this, this author that I've been following for years and supporting on Patreon. His name's Nafiz Ahmad, and he has a publication that he publishes on Medium called Insurge Intelligence, where he does these super deep dives into what's going on right now. And he actually, one of the more recent things that he wrote about what's going on with the coronavirus, at the end of it, a couple things that he says is... Getting through coronavirus will be an exercise not just in building societal resilience, but relearning the values of cooperation, compassion, generosity, and kindness, and building systems which institutionalize these values. The real way forward is obvious to anyone who pauses for a moment to reflect on what this present moment really means in its full context. But that requires stepping beyond the immediate reactionary fears and desires of your psyche and allowing yourself to think, see, and presence as a person who is an integral node in the web of life. And there's just, there's so many amazing people out there that we can be getting our information from, so many experts, so many great people. And we need more of that. And they need more support. In one of my most favorite books I've ever read, called The Human Project, they give a pretty high level but thorough breakdown of all of the existential threats that our species is faced with, all of the grand challenges, as well as all of the um 
ultimate goals that we have to these challenges and the visions that people are coming up with for them and the progress that's being made. And one of the most important things that I remember to think about and I fall back on, especially in times like this where things are so uncertain and they're scary, is that there's literally hundreds of millions of people and trillions of dollars being spent on fixing all of the problems that we're faced with. And while that's great and it's something to remember, we, we have no guarantees. And the only way that we're going to have the best shot at solving these grand challenges and averting catastrophic disasters is if we have more people like you, just regular people, getting involved and getting your information from high quality, reliable, reputable sources. And that's one of the most important things that we can do right now is to share information responsibly during these times because disinformation and spreading fear can have very real world consequences and to support people creating good information. And in the, the realm of conspiracies, we really need to, for ourselves and for those around us that we see engaging with these types of materials, we need to stop searching for easy answers because there really are no easy answers to the problems that we're faced with. And there's so many other things that you can do that we can do to help out during these times to literally help save people's lives. Like we can give blood if we can, we can give to food banks, we can donate to, there's a million different organizations we can donate to if we have the money to, or we can donate our time, we can volunteer. My girlfriend and I have been volunteering a little bit with a neighborhood organization to help go get groceries for people that aren't supposed to leave their house. There's organizations of people all over the world doing that kind of stuff right now. If you want to find a way to actually help, then there's literally a million ways that you can do that, that we can all do that, and we can encourage other people to do so as well. It's all a choice. It's always our choice. So I'll leave it at that. I'll stop blabbing. That's it for today. If you enjoyed the show, please give me a, a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. Share it. Tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it or you have feedback you'd like to provide me on anything as well, let me know. I welcome that as well. Until next time.
very openly, very publicly to maxify. I think one of the lessons we're going to learn from all of this is that it's time for trickle up. Ep- it's time for trickle up. Ep- <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> it's time. It's time for trickle up economics. <laughs> I don't know why that's so fucking hard to say. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <clears throat>